Welcome to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas and films. We are your hosts, Karen and Kathy. Today, as part of a special Chinese New Year episode, we are going to be discussing the 2016 film Xuanzang. That's X-U-A-N-Z-A-N-G. If it's a little difficult to pronounce, you can think of the X sound as an SH sound, so Xuanzang. The film stars Huang Xiaoming and follows the extensive trials and tribulations of probably the most famous Chinese monk in history, Xuanzang, during the early Tang Dynasty in his quest to reach India to study Buddhist texts and bring them back to China. This journey took him about 19 years, but his unwavering tenacity for this journey and I would say kindness from those around him led him to complete his task. This podcast episode is in English with proper nouns and certain Chinese phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. In this podcast episode, we will first provide a brief background on the titular character, then introduce the main actor for Xuanzang, Huang Xiaoming, and finally tell the story of Xuanzang from what is portrayed in the film and provide historical Chinese context. There's also quite a bit of Indian culture and history portrayed, but as we are not experts there, we will only lightly cover those portions of the film. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, welcome, and I recommend checking out our website, ChasingDramas.com, for more information on what we normally chat about. Our main goal is to provide more Chinese cultural and historical context to English-speaking fans of Chinese historical films and dramas. So hopefully by the end of this episode, you will have learned something about Xuanzang. The film is easily accessible with English subtitles on Jubao TV, spelled J-U-B-A-O TV, which you can also reach online or on TV from Xfinity or Cox Contour. If you have any questions or feedback on what we discussed in this episode, please feel free to reach out to us at Karen and Kathy at ChasingDramas.com or else message us on Instagram or Twitter. Let's get started. So who is Xuanzang? Xuanzang is one of the most famous individuals in Chinese culture and history, not only because of his contribution to Buddhism in China, but because he and his journey inspired the famous novel, The Journey to the West, or Xiyouji. It's pretty hard to talk about Xuanzang and not talk about Xiyouji, or Journey to the West. The novel, written in the 16th century, or the Ming Dynasty, by Wu Chengen, though that is currently being disputed, I didn't know, is one of the four great classical novels in Chinese literature. The other three being Romance of the Three Kingdoms, Water Margin, and Dream of the Red Mansion. As with the other novels, Si Yuji has endured for centuries and is still very much a part of the Chinese cultural identity. Though not every Chinese person has read the original text, they would have consumed some type of variation of the story, whether in a comic or a book or a TV show, an opera or a retelling. The story of The Journey to the West is embedded in the fabric of Chinese culture and history. 
One of the most iconic television dramas in China is the 1986 version of The Journey to the West. Even though special effects were rudimentary at the time, the acting was superb and the costume and set design just as good. To this day, it is still considered the best iteration of The Journey to the West on screen. The actor for Sun Wukong, or the Monkey King, Liu Xiaolingtong, did an absolutely stellar job bringing the Monkey King to life that it is still the standard for what people think of when imagining the Monkey King. I mean, I always refer back to that version when I'm thinking about Journey to the West. On a personal note, Karen and I grew up listening to Mandarin Chinese children's audiobook versions of the story and also rewatched the 1986 version on DVD growing up. I would like to think that a huge part of our Chinese language and history knowledge started early on through the likes of the Journey to the West. That is just to give us or you listeners an idea of the cultural impact that this story has, even to this day. Many of the Journey to the West's story elements were taken from Xuanzang's own account of his travels west and then to India. In the novel, Xuanzang, or else one could call him Tang Sanzang, also heads west to seek sacred texts to bring back to the Tang Dynasty. Very similar story. Along with him, though, are his disciples, one, Sun Wukong, a powerful monkey born of stone that possesses insane supernatural abilities. Two, Zhu Bajie, a former general in the heavens, but is now a part human, part pig creature uh, who was churned into that creature as punishment for his lust. And three, this guy named Sha Sung, a former general in the heavens as well, punished on earth and lived by a river. These three disciples, along with a white horse, were tasked by the Buddha and the Jade Emperor to protect Xuanzang on his harrowing journey. In the novel, the group must battle many demons and spirits, as well as turmoil within the group before reaching uh, the promised land and getting the text and finally returning to China. As you can tell, in this novel of Xiyoji, there are many mythical elements which tied together folk religion, mythology, Taoism, Buddhism, amongst many other things. Why did we just spend so much time talking about the journey to the West? Well, it's because most people know Xiyoji or the journey to the West, but perhaps not many people know about Xuanzang himself and his real journey. That was indeed true for me, so I appreciated that this film was made to reveal the man behind the myth, if you will. For those who grew up knowing at least a little bit about the journey to the West, we'll see many references to the inspirations of events or places in the novel portrayed in Xuanzang's journey in this film. And that is pretty much how we took it uh, while watching this film. It's a familiar yet different story. And it's almost as if we were looking for Easter eggs in this film that ties to the journey to the West, which is something that we are so knowledgeable or it's just, you know, something we're very comfortable with. Now, with that context, let's talk about the main actor. The film largely features Huang Xiaoming as the titular character Xuanzang. 
We have followed his career pretty much since the beginning. That has spent now more than 20 years. This definitely ages us. <laughs> he played Prince Liu Che in the series Da Han Tianzi, or The Prince of Han, which came out in 2001. Liu Che, the subsequent Emperor Wu of Han, is one of the most well-known emperors in Chinese history, and one we've talked about within our podcast series. I cannot describe how obsessed we were with that drama. Rewatching it a couple of times... No, not a couple, multiple times, and also listening to the soundtrack on repeat. This was another one of the dramas that really sparked our interest in Chinese history and ultimately our podcast today. So from the very beginning, we've always had a soft spot for him and watched more of his earlier dramas. Wang Xiaoming was born in Qingdao in 1989 and attended the Beijing Film Academy, where he studied with other famous classmates, such as Vicky Zhao. He has had a successful career and is one of the A-list stars in China right now, winning numerous acting awards for various roles, including this one at the 13th Changchun Film Festival in China. We also cannot talk about Huang Xiaoming without talking about his now ex-wife, Angela Baby. This is super hot off the press, as of January 28th, 2022, hot off the press. Wang Xiaoming and Angela Baby, yes, that's her English name, announced their divorce after seven years of marriage. They have a son together, which I'm assuming they'll share custody of. It's a little funny what the public reaction has been. Rumors were swirling forever that they were getting divorced, but now that it's come to fruition, the top trending Weibo or the equivalent of Chinese Twitter was like, this is the most unsurprising divorce ever. Angela Baby is quite well known for her looks on the red carpet and her involvement in the extremely popular Chinese reality TV show Running Man and its subsequent iterations. Though from an acting perspective, Huang Xiaoming is the powerhouse of the now decoupled pair. I would say Huang Xiaoming and Angela Baby have been in have been like staple tabloid fodder for the past decade. So we'll see what happens to both of them now that they are divorced. And because we've largely seen Huang Xiaoming in roles as a prince or emperor or martial arts master, or I would say, you know, like a big boss, what have you, it was a little jarring to see him play a monk. His countenance uh, and stature to me just took me a little out of the story because I'm so used to thinking of him as a powerful individual. And in general, he likes to give himself the aura of that extremely wealthy, you know, confident businessman. There is a saying in China of the ba dao zong tai, which is what I just described about the businessman or like the um, extremely powerful CEO. And that is the, I guess, image people normally attribute to him. He's also been tagged the term yoni, which means oily in China. And it's generally derogatory, kind of meaning somebody who is uh, maybe a little like chubbier because of their wealth um, and someone who is a little uh, very slick, if that makes sense. Not in a, but in like kind of a creepy way. Yeah, also like kind of in a creepy way. So I personally don't think people give him enough acting credit. Maybe it's just because of our bias from Da Han Tian or the Prince of Han early on. 
Through this film, though, you can clearly see his dedication to the role and the desire to do it justice. Many idols and younger actors today would not want to play this role because just from the set itself, you could tell it was a tough and dry environment to film in. The role of Xuanzang is not a handsome one, and not many people would have wanted to film such a tough role uh, where you're not in a lot of makeup, you're filming in extreme conditions. But this guy was like, I want to do it. And you could tell he he really tried. The rest of the cast in this film features some pretty well-known actors from China, Hong Kong, and even India, though they're mainly cameos. The film itself began production in 2015 and was released in China in spring of 2016. The film was produced by the China Film Corporation and Eros International. I will say this consistently throughout this podcast episode. The film is absolutely gorgeous to look at and was filmed on location in Turpan, Changji, Altai, Aksu, Kashgar, which are all in the Xinjiang province of China, the Gansu province of China, and other places in India. The second half of the movie prominently features India. As we are not experts of Indian culture, we will refrain much from commenting on this. With that background, let's move on to our film recap, in which we'll also point out interesting things along the way. The movie has many parallels to Journey of the West, so we'll point those out where we see them. The film opens with a student at the Mumbai University in 2016 requesting a book written by Alexander Cunningham from the librarian. The book the student picks out is The Ancient Geography of India, written by Alexander Cunningham, with the first half published in 1871. We get a voiceover of Cunningham describing his discoveries, including the Nalanda. He had also come across an ancient text, The Journey to the West by the monk Xuanzang. A small nitpick here. It wouldn't be the journey to the West because, as we said, that was written centuries later. Xuanzang did leave an autobiographical recitation of his travels called the Great Tang Records of the Western Regions, or Da Tang Xi Yu Ji. Fellow monks wrote down his words to write this book, so that might be what the movie is referencing. From the discovery of the ancient text, we then move towards Xuanzang's story. Xuanzang was born at the end of the Sui Dynasty in 602 AD in Henan Province. His family name was Chen. In the film, Xuanzang recounts that his mother told him he was placed in a bucket and floated down a river during flood when he was a baby and was rescued by a monk. Others say his brother took him to the monastery to study. Regardless, Xuanzang feels that he was destined to become a monk. To note, the story of him being placed in a bucket or a basket and floated down the river to a monastery and then becoming a monk is the one that is recounted in The Journey to the West. We see adult Xuanzang telling us his story of his journey when he set off from Chang'an, the capital of the Tang Dynasty, so from the very beginning. 
Xuanzang is a devout monk and wishes to head to India, the source of the original Buddhist texts, to study, learn, and bring these texts back to China. The year is 627 AD, and in the early years of the reign of Tang Taizong, this guy named Li Shimin. He is one of the most famous Chinese emperors in Chinese history. We've already talked about two. One is Han Wudi, and the other one here is Li Shimin. We will touch up on his reign when we talk about the drama, the long ballad in future episodes. For now, some major talking points is that Li Shimin was involved in a coup where he overthrew his brothers to claim the throne. But despite this bloody beginning, he brought the empire to one of China's greatest heights under the Jinguan era. So he is well known for being probably one of the best emperors for Chinese expansion and cultural revolutions. With that background, the emperor has issued a special decree that allowed people to leave the city to find better fortunes or food due to recent famines. There is a throwaway line where the decree says that people of any class can leave. For those uh, who will listen to our story of Mingland podcast episodes, you'll recognize that this is talking about the class you were born to as part of your personal registration deed. Amongst the crowd, we see Xuanzang also heading out of the city as well. He is in simple monk attire and carrying a rather heavy-looking backpack of sorts. This is what I found to be called a fu ji, and is actually, this look is a real-life adaptation from a painting that showed Xuanzang's whole getup when he was leaving uh, during his travels, and this Painting is called Xuanzang Fu Ji Tu. This pack is normally made of bamboo and can fit quite a bit. Plus, it helps protect you from the rain because there's like a little overhead awning. This pack is historically used by scholars or students for traveling, particularly when heading to the capital for the imperial entrance exams, which we also talk about in our story uh, of Mingland podcast episodes, if you want more background on that. One of the most famous... Uh, depictions of this backpack look is in the Chinese film Tian Yu Youhun, or a Chinese ghost story where the main male lead is a young scholar carrying this type of pack and meets a young female ghost. Now, there is some dispute on which year Xuanzang actually left, 627 AD or 629, but we'll just go ahead with the movie version here. To me, the film is broken out into a few parts. The first revolves around the human-made obstacles for his journey, but then also the kind people who help him succeed. His master is the first to tell him that perhaps he shouldn't leave, but Xuanzang ignores this and pushes forward. When he does leave Chang'an, the capital of the Tang Dynasty and present-day Xi'an, home of the Terracotta Warriors, he finds his way west to Liangzhou, this is an ancient province in the northwest of China. It is roughly in modern-day Gansu province. The province itself was important as it helped connect the Silk Road from the Chinese empires to uh, Central Asia. There, he meets his next obstacle. The governor questions Xuanzang about his intentions and whether he obtained permission from the emperor for his journey. 
during that time, if anyone wanted to travel to different cities or I guess different garrisons, they needed to have permission um, or obtain permission by the local uh, magistrate or officials to do so. Unfortunately, Xuanzang did not receive any permission. Therefore, the governor cannot grant him permission to head west and instead orders all officials along the western border to arrest him on sight. Xuanzang stays in the city at a local monastery to teach for many months. By then, the governor has all but forgotten about him, and with the help of another venerable monk, assists Xuanzang in leaving the city to continue on his pilgrimage. He is now in Guazhou, which is on the route towards the Yumenguan, or the Jade Pass. The Jade Pass is one of the most famous passes in Chinese history, which we'll talk about in a bit. A local official, Li Chang, sees him and brings him in for questioning. He recognizes him as the monk on the wanted posters. Once again, the official tries to persuade Xuanzang into returning east, but upon seeing Xuanzang's devotion and some pretty bad CGI cherry blossoms or lotus flowers, I don't know, <laughs> the CGI is quite bad, the official agrees to let Xuanzang continue on his journey. This is a turning point in seeing the aid of strangers and their soft-heartedness. I would like to think that without the help of some of these individuals, Xuanzang would not have succeeded. Something to note is that the official took to helping Xuanzang partly because he saw what Xuanzang was eating while the official was riding past Xuanzang at the market. Monks normally carry a bowl, and I believe it's called a alms bowl, or in Chinese, a bo. One of the six items a monk is allowed to carry. It is a tool, Xuanzang, where the monks are uh, able to use to request food from strangers on a journey. As we see in the movie, Xuanzang holds out this bowl to a shop owner and is immediately given food. It is a universal sign as to who the person requesting the food is, aka a monk, and most people are generally very generous to giving to monks. Of course, this is going to be vegetarian food. I really like the touch that they added in this film because in my view, it shows that when the official Li Chang saw that Xuanzang was not doing this for wealth, riches, and whatnot, but is rather doing it because he truly wants to. From there, and leaving the safety of Chinese cities, we follow Xuanzang out west, and we get to see some of the most beautiful and stunning landscapes in China that oftentimes are not portrayed in historical dramas because most of them are now focused on the grandeur of palaces and prominent households. Out west are plateaus and forests that are difficult to pass, but breathtakingly beautiful. The film does make me feel like we're doing a, a tour of hard-to-travel places in China and beyond. In order to continue his journey, Xuanzang finds merchant caravans and joins them as they head out along the Silk Road out west. As he explains in the film, this is actually customary for traveling monks. They tag along with merchant caravans to get to where they need to. Shortly after, he makes it to Yumenguan or the Jade Pass. The Jade Pass was one of the roads that connected Central Asia with China on the Silk Road. It was made famous during the Han Dynasty and erected around 
110 BCE during the reign of Emperor Wu of Han. This is a name that continually pops up as the division between the East and the West. The emperor bestowed the name the Jade Pass or Yumenguan because of all the Yu or Jade that was traded through the area. There's not much left of it now, just a lonely gate. There's one poem that I really like from the Tang Dynasty describing the Jade Pass. I briefly studied this poem when I was younger. This poem is not mentioned in the movie at all, but for my selfish reasons, I want to share this poem. It's written by Wang Zhihuan, who lived from 688 to 742 AD. So he was a Tang Dynasty poet. The poem goes like this. 黄河远上白云间,一片孤城万仞山,枪敌何须愿杨柳,春风不度玉门关。My translation goes like this. The water from the yellow river meets the white clouds. The lonely jade pass stands resolute on the mountain. Why should we use the qiang flute to lament the delay of spring? It's because spring does not come to the jade pass. I personally like it a lot because it tells us of how lonely the place is, but just how important it has been also to Chinese uh, history and culture. From there, Xuanzang crosses Shazhou or modern-day Dunhuang, a major hub along the Silk Road during the Sui and Tang dynasties. A number of Buddhist caves can be found in Dunhuang with art and murals that are found along the walls. Whenever you think about Dunhuang, you think about these arts and beautiful women depicted on the art on the walls. Along the way, Xuanzang and a female companion pass Yueyachuan, or the Crescent Lake, which is found near Dunhuang. Xuanzang doesn't enter, but there are two monks who watch him pass. The Crescent Lake was a tourist destination dating back to the Han Dynasty over 2,000 years ago, and paintings depicting the lake can be found dating back to the Tang Dynasty between the 7th and 10th century AD, which is right around the time that is being portrayed in the film. I don't know when the temple portrayed in the film was built, but apparently you can travel there now as a tourist. Along the journey, Xuanzang also gains a disciple, a guy named Van Dak, or Shi Pan Tuo, who assists his master in crossing the Hulu River. This disciple reminds us of the three disciples of Xuanzang from the journey to the west. This guy, Van Dak, or his Chinese name, Shi, means stone. And so I'm immediately making the connection to Xuanzang's first and most powerful disciple, the Monkey King, who was turned into a monkey from stone. In this movie, we see that this disciple fled home to follow Xuanzang, but ultimately could not keep his vows to the Buddhist faith and ultimately leaves. While actually ditching your master and leaving him does not happen in the journey to the West, the monkey king does leave his teacher several times throughout the novel out of anger or disputes, but I guess for the story's sake, returns to protect his teacher. After doing some research, Shi Pantua or Van Dak was an actual historical person and did join Xuanzang on his quest westward, but did not accompany him the entire way. So it sounds like in the novel, they they made it a little bit more romantic um, where the disciples stayed. In real life, that did not happen. 
On Van Dyck's departure, he advises Xuanzang to find an old horse who knows the path well to help him on his journey. And this horse readily appears after Xuanzang randomly runs into the young woman he met earlier at the Crescent Lake. And it was really nice of her to just give him this old horse, which was ultimately his saving grace. This woman... I think her appearance is a little random, but to me kind of also connects with a lot of the demons or evil spirits portrayed in the journey to the West as potential lustful uh, distractions for Xuanzang on his journey. In the novel, in COT, there are so many female demons or evil spirits that uh, want to eat the meat of Xuanzang while he's going west. So there's been a lot of uh, fighting back against that. <laughs> After a long trek with his new old horse, Xuanzang travels to the first of five watchtowers and is promptly spotted by the guards and brought to the captain. The watchtower looks to be Bai Hu Guan, and the location seems similar to the photos I've seen, but I cannot confirm. These watchtowers are a major obstacle for Xuanzang, and there is another parallel to the journey to the west. In that novel, the five watchtowers are changed to the five mountain peaks, or Wu Xingshan, which represent the hand of the Rulai Buddha. The monkey king, Sun Wukong, wreaked havoc and tried to escape the heavens, but the Buddha used his hands to create five mountain peaks that the Monkey King could not escape. The Monkey King was imprisoned under the mountain until he was rescued by his teacher, Xuanzang. Sound familiar? There's also a Chinese idiom, which is Xin, which means you cannot escape the palm of my hand. And that literally represents or is a story from um, the Monkey King, where the Monkey King is trying to escape and fly out, but he could not escape the palm of, Ru, the, of Rulai Buddha's hand. And that's what we're seeing depicted in the five um, mountain peaks right now. Back to the watchtower. The captain offers Xuanzang some food as they discuss Xuanzang's journey. A little bug in the scene. We see corn and potatoes being served. Those are New World foods, as in they were only brought to East Asia after the discovery of the Americas, which of course happened in 1492. China would not have had them in the middle of the 7th century. For all of you listeners or watchers, if ever you see kind of a, a show in China having like corn or potatoes or even sweet potatoes, you know that that is historically inaccurate. The captain and Xuanzang have a rather deep conversation about dreams for the future. Fortunately, that is Xuanzang's specialty, and he is able to help the captain think more positively about his current situation being stuck in this desolate land. The captain then gives Xuanzang advice on how to avoid the next four watchtowers. Xuanzang must cross the Taklamakan Desert and find the Wild Horse Spring. Now we move on to the second part of the film, which is more about individual tenacity. Xuanzang is trekking through the Taklamakan Desert by himself with just his old horse. 
This portion of the film reflects his dedication to his dream of reaching his destination and the inner strength it takes to stay on course when faced with not just the elements, but also inner loneliness. It was quite the treat to watch Huang Xiaoming as he played this dedication, but also desperation very well, with his sunburned and tanned skin and extremely chapped lips in the face of the desert heat. I don't envy what he had to go through to kind of show us what Xuanzang had to go through back during his travels. The Taklamakan Desert is located in Xinjiang province in western China and close to its western borders. The Shifting Sand Desert is one of the largest in the world and spreads 130,000 square miles. It is a barren wasteland that travelers sought to avoid. Therefore, it is indeed impressive for Xuanzang to cross it by himself with just a horse. The journey through the desert is perilous, to say the least. He loses water, loses his way, and his horse just straight up ignores him when Xuanzang urges the horse to continue forward. Not long after, Xuanzang begins hallucinating, and in his hallucinations, he sees a monk on a white horse galloping in a lush field. Just when all seems lost, and I personally thought the horse was going to die first, the horse finds the wild horse spring and saves Xuanzang. Just like his disciple who abandoned him said, you must find an old horse who knows the route to help him cross. Well, Xuanzang has this magical horse who carries the delirious Xuanzang on his back to the wild horse spring. I don't even know how Xuanzang got up there. But anyways, Xuanzang cannot believe his eyes when he wakes up and immediately jumps into the water out of happiness. From there, it is more or less smooth sailing for Xuanzang as he arrives in the kingdom of Yi Wu, which is in northern China, or northwest China, and is shortly summoned by the king of Gaochang as a guest of his kingdom. By looking at a map of his journey, he crossed the desert but ended up further north than I thought he would. This brings us to the third part of the film and his trials. He is tempted with wealth, riches, and power to keep him from his journey. The next place we go to, or he goes to, is Gaochang. Gaochang is an ancient city along the Silk Road and is also in modern-day Xinjiang. During the 5th to 7th centuries, several Han families came to this area and claimed to be king. We see a relatively wealthy kingdom where the king of Gaochang is a devout follower of Buddhist teachings. This little interlude actually did occur, and we know that the real person is a guy named Qu Wentai. Xuanzang stays for several months to teach the king and the other monks, with pretty much the entire kingdom also listening to his teachings. He is given respect, food, clothing, and a great place to rest. The king of Gaochang requests for Xuanzang to stay even longer, actually threatening him to do so. But despite the threats, nothing could stop Xuanzang as he goes on a hunger strike in order to force the king to allow him to leave. While it is in Buddhist teachings that one should not seek wealth and riches, it would have been very easy and comfortable to stay in such a spot where Xuanzang would have been venerated by all. It does take quite a singular mind to give up all of this to continue on his journey. The king finally relents and orders a vast caravan to travel with Xuanzang on his journey west. Overall, the king was pretty good to Xuanzang, and he even sent letters on Xuanzang's behalf to kingdoms on his route, 
in order to give him safe passage all the way to his final destination. I read that they became brothers, or uh, you say godbrothers? Yeah, basically they just become really, really good friends and consider themselves uh, brothers. But sadly, they would never see each other again because the Tang Dynasty in 640 AD conquered Gaochang, turning it into one of the cities under Tang rule. Gaochang is situated in modern-day Xinjiang in the Turpine region, or Tulufan. This is also where the Flaming Mountains are located, or Yan Shan. This mountain is prominently featured in the Journey to the West as an impassable mountain, and only the winds from the magical Bajiao Shan, or banana fan owned by the Princess Iron Fan, can temper the flames. I admit, I loved these episodes in the Journey to the West TV series. In the Journey to the West, there are also plenty of kings and queens who tried anything and everything to keep Xuanzang within their borders, which reminds me a lot of the Gaochang King. It also does look like they filmed in the Turpan region, right next to the Huoyanshan, because if you take a look at the film and photos um, that I googled of the area, um, it looks like it's the same place. I never knew Huoyanshan was a real place, so I'm, I'm glad that uh, I learned something new here. For the next couple of scenes, we see Xuanzang visiting a myriad of kingdoms on his journey west after leaving Gaochang. We will list them out here and briefly talk about each one. The first stop is in a kingdom called Atini, and records say that he did actually stay at a temple there. Next up is further out west to a kingdom called Qiuzi or Kucha, where he enjoys the company of the king and other venerable monks. He is treated to a great display of music and dancing. Kucha is located in the Xinjiang province of China on the northern edge of the Taklamakan Desert. In history, this was an ancient Buddhist kingdom. There were records of the kingdom dating all the way back to the 2nd century BCE when Zhang Tian, a Chinese diplomat and official under the rule of uh, Emperor Wu of Han, who sent him on this journey, traveled west to establish the Silk Road. Due to the kingdom's strategic location along the Silk Road, the kingdom remained prosperous over the centuries. Buddhism was introduced before the end of the 1st century. And similar to Gaochang, Kucha was conquered by the Tang Dynasty uh, a few years later in 648 AD during the emperor's campaign against the western regions. Xuanzang did travel to this kingdom and he wrote about the Buddhist culture there in his writings. Next, Xuanzang mentions the kingdom Balujia or modern day Aksu, located in also Xinjiang province. It was another ancient kingdom along the Silk Road as well. After crossing the desert, Xuanzang and his caravan pass Lingshan and the Pamir Mountains, which is to the west of Xinjiang and borders modern-day Tajikistan. From Lingshan, the caravan crosses the Central Asian steppes, modern-day Kyrgyzstan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and finally arrives in India. Xuanzang arrives at Nalanda after four long years of travel. And this begins my view of the fourth part of the film, learning. Xuanzang spends five years at the temple studying and spends another five years traveling through India, including the Mahabodhi temple, where the Buddha is said to have attained enlightenment. 
I will give props to the film. The characters apparently are speaking Sanskrit, which is quite surprising. Now, I personally don't know if it's era appropriate, and I would love some of our listeners to let us know, but at least it is Sanskrit as is mentioned in the movie. While learning, Xuanzang also continues to travel around to further enrich his experiences. In India, Xuanzang recounts how Buddha attained enlightenment amongst the backdrop of the Ellora Caves and the Ajanta Buddhist Caves. One day, Xuanzang encounters a slave and a woman. The woman is the daughter of a villager who owned the slave. The house burned down one day and the slave saved the woman, but by touching her, he was cursed to wear a mask forever and the woman was cast out. Only a Brahmin can lift the curse. After hearing the tale, Xuanzang travels with both of them to find a Brahmin and requests for the Brahmin to lift the curse, which he does. The slave, Jayaram, must bathe in the Ganges for 10 days, and then he will be able to remove his mask. Xuanzang begins his travels back to Nalanda with his scriptures and the couple. An elephant also travels with them. Very bad CGI elephant, I think. No, the elephant is real. <laughs> While traveling up the river, the sky suddenly turns dark and a storm quickly rolls through. Several of the boats crash, including the one with the elephant. And I guess, for me, apologies, a very funny moment of the film. The elephant crashes or falls into the river. Don't worry, I don't think anything happened to the elephant because the CGI for the elephant is quite obvious. Jairam, the slave, jumps into the water to save Xuanzang's scriptures. During the rescue, his mask falls off and his curse is no more. There is a tranquil shot of the couple on the boat with the elephant walking up the banks. So, yes, the elephant is fine and the couple uh, can live, I guess, happily ever after. Having returned to Nalanda Temple, Xuanzang by now, having been in India for 10 years, is ready to head back to China. But the emperor in India has organized a debate to discuss theology. Nalanda sends four monks as its representatives, including Xuanzang, to take part in the debate. The group traveled to the Kumbha Mela Festival in Kanange in 642 AD, and please excuse my pronunciation, this is not an area I'm familiar with. The debate lasted 18 days and was a triumph for everyone involved and the spread in Buddhism that occurred because of this debate. Xuanzang and Nalanda Temple won, ultimately, and Xuanzang finally begins his journey back to the Tang Empire. The journey back is very different from the journey to India. The emperor from the Tang Dynasty actually sent envoys to greet and protect his caravan to return home. The journey home takes him another three years, and Xuanzang finally returns in 645 AD. Overall, it is a 19-year journey. Throughout the film, we also constantly see a horse motif. In the journey to the west, Xuanzang has a trusty steed, uh, which is the white dragon horse, or Bai Long Ma. The white dragon horse was actually a dragon prince who transformed into a horse to help Xuanzang on his journey. Unlike Xuanzang's other disciples, who at times either abandoned their teacher or had a crisis of faith, 
This Bailong Ma or white dragon horse stayed by Xuanzang's side throughout the journey. And you will see in the film on the way back, Xuanzang is riding a white horse. There is no way that this is not purposeful by the director. Everybody knows Tang Xuanzang or Xuanzang rode a Bailong Ma. And so that's why they put this white horse in the film. After he returns, Xuanzang spends the next decades of his life translating the scriptures and sutras that he brought back from India into Chinese. The emperor himself wrote a preface for one of the sutras translated by Xuanzang. The film ends with a biographical recap of Xuanzang's life. He brought back over 150 important Buddhist relics and over 657 volumes of religious texts, which he spent over two decades, or around two decades, translating. The contributions of Buddhism in China by this one man cannot be understated, and that is ultimately what I think is a key theme in this film. Xuanzang died in 664 AD. All right, so that was our film recap. It was actually quite fun. We did a lot of research on watching this movie. So I want to share some of my overall thoughts. I'm glad I saw this film as I was thoroughly impressed with the dedication the lead Huang Xiaoming put into the role. And I was stunned by how beautiful the cinematography was. It's a gorgeous film to look at. It was a visual treat, for me at least, to compare the locations in the film with photos online as I was trying to Google, hey, where is the mountains? Where is X, Y, and Z? Several of these places are now on my bucket list of places that I want to travel to. I would say I preferred the first half of the film a little more than the second half, primarily because some of the scenes in the second half left me with question marks as to how it tied to the overall theme, such as, um, I guess, the storyline with the slave. Like, yes, I understand that Xuanzang is extremely kind-hearted. Anything else? Yes, also maybe Huang Xiaoming. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I thought he did a great job, but still maybe a little too buff for the role. You can see his massive biceps in the movie, and I'm not quite sure if that's how um, a Buddhist monk was like back in the day. Apparently, Huang Xiaoming is a rather devout Buddhist himself and really wanted to play this role. So for that, I have to thank him for I would say for audiences who grew up watching Journey to the West, several parts tread familiar beats as they are, you know, sharing a similar story. For me, the scenes in India were very interesting to see because those aren't really mentioned in Chinese folklore. The Journey to the West essentially stops once the group reaches India and becomes enlightened. It was, for me, a thoroughly enjoyable watch, or at least I was pleasantly surprised. I can see why people didn't or may not enjoy the film as much because it can be a little bit slower and it's not something that um, you have to or you see a lot of action. It's something that you have to think about a little bit more calmly. I mean, the, the subject matter is a Buddhist monk, so it's not the most action-packed drama uh, or film, but that doesn't mean um, it's not enjoyable. So if you want to spend two hours watching a gorgeous film and learn about some history, this is a really good movie to check out. 
Well, that is it for this episode. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us on uh, what was discussed today for our podcast episode. Like we mentioned earlier, this film is easily accessible on Jubao TV, which is a channel that has a collection of Chinese films and dramas with English subtitles. I personally went to the Jubao TV website and then moved over to uh, Juma or XUMO, which is the streaming platform to watch this film. It is also available on Xfinity and Cox Contour on TV. This is primarily for uh, North America. If you are outside of the States, I believe it is also on YouTube. Happy Lunar New Year to everyone. It is the year of the tiger and we will catch you in the next episode.